0: Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net.
1: Marco, Sean, you ready? There's no limit being ready Mark.
2: no None. you have a do you have a coin to talk into the, <laughs> the video game console and then you can see ready player one
1: that's right and uh, all, all of life's real adventures <laughs> and everything <laughs> right that there. happened
2: yeah did, did you used to play those video games did you do I played games a lot fun? of video games yeah The um, arcade.
1: and yeah yeah not many at home to be honest with you I'm, the, I'm not one of those guys I don't know what what the reason was, but I never ended up doing that. But I spent a lot of time, a lot of maybe foolishly, a lot of quarters <laughs> in, the, in the machines. A lot of times waiting for pizza to, to get uh, baked in the oven while you're waiting there. They always and have there the, the, you go. the tabletop the... Pac-Man. Always back to food, Mark.
2: Yeah, it's a good brew. Back to food. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> we're not talking about food today Sean no, we we actually done something that uh, we, we we mentioned sometimes and like hey we should have a serious about this and then we eventually we don't but this time we actually <laughs> stick with the plan we had a conversation with uh Carrie and Raphael not too long ago about video games and gaming industry and the metaverse and uh, a bunch of other things and uh, we said you don't there is so much we can talk about here, so here we are.
1: We're here. We're here, and uh, this this series has no limits either, Marco. And also, I think we these, have no plans. So. No plan. <laughs> I think I think the only plan we have is to kind of test the, the waters for what drives what imagination to technology, or the other way around, or or is it something completely different? Um, and who knows where we're going to go with this? Um, I, I say we start with a known, which is who Raphael and Carrie are. We know them, but our audience may not. If you didn't hear the last episode, after you finish this one, please listen to that one because it was, it was mind-blowing. Um, but Raphael and Carrie, a uh, few words from each of you. Just kind of re- reintroduce your folks or yourselves to our audience. Uh, Rafi first.
3: All right. Uh So, Raphael Brown, I'm a uh, game designer and developer. I've been uh, developing for 26 years now uh, across a range of platforms from PC to console to mobile to VR. Um, Actually, even some AR as well. (laughs) So, um, I've worked at at, at a range of places, um, but uh, Electronic Arts, Activision, um, uh, 2K Games, Nintendo, uh, uh, Midway and, and others. Um studio large and small. Um, I, I think that just to sum it up, um, I try to be p- uh, platforming technology agnostic. Um, I try to kind of remember and remind myself to be a, a pure designer, um, which means that I wanna sit down with whatever technology is ahead of me and try to figure out how to optimize for that and make a good experience for the player. Uh, the player, a user-centric design is the most important thing for a good game designer. Make a good experience that the player can feel like they can get immersed in.
1: And Kerry, you don't care about the user, right?
4: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do care about the user. But,
1: uh, <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Yes. <laughs>
4: to an extent, not as much as RAF does. I mean, I, I care more about the about the technology part of it. Um, I think I, I would describe myself as technologically curious. Uh, I've been, I've been, a, I've been, started my career as a developer before going on to work in massive game studios, uh, electronic arts where I met RAF and then working at uh, Nexon who been part of the leadership team that took it public before joining smaller studios. And then now I'm finally, Deep into the technology space, AI, virtual worlds, metaverse, and what what implications AI has uh, for all of these stuff and and beyond beyond just games, um, and that's uh, that's what uh, that what keeps it interesting for me, and, and I'm happy to happy to be here and talk more about that.
1: Nice, nice. Well, we'll, we'll see where this goes. Um, let, let's kick it off. I mean, so you all know that I played console games at the arcade and and at the pizza joint. Um, what about you guys? I think it sounds like midway. I think that's a, it's a company that makes some of those. I, I presume <laughs> Rafael, you, you, you were had to play them. <laughs> what about, what about, um, uh, in, in oh, the, I've or, I've in, always yeah. played
3: games. Yeah. Um, so, um, I, I think like a lot of, um, a lot of game designers in, in, in my time, um, we played like, I, I, I played card games, board games, um, arcade games um, you know i my my first my first uh not game system but computer was a, a ti 99. um you know I, I learned to program basic on that um oftentimes copying out of uh out of magazines you know literally going like okay it says this here type this in um, you know because you know that was kind of how you got started back in in, in that time um, i you know, my my parents were very receptive to creative endeavors. They're both teachers. Um, because of that, um, I got exposed to um, Dungeons and Dragons back at uh, at a summer camp outside of Seattle. And from there, got kind of a lifelong fascination with the creation of games and the connection also between games and storytelling, and the notion that that uh, games are about play. And they're about this kind of playful, interactive storytelling. Um, I I very quickly connected the fact that my father had a close family friend who was a Ghanaian master drummer, who in his spare time would, uh, would tell my brother and I stories, you know, he would come over after performances, and he would tell us stories of Anansi the spider. Um, That notion of telling us a story and having that story come to life. I connected to then going and playing um, Dungeons and Dragons around a literal campfire and going, oh, right, there's a rule book and dice, but we don't actually need it. Um, These are expressions of rules and rules are ways to codify how we can work and interact, but we can also just sit here around a campfire as kids in summer camp in the late 70s and basically go, one person is creating a story and the rest of us are participating. It's call and response. Um, The story is the thing that we create together. And realizing that there's not that much of a jump from that to playing on an Atari 2600 or to going into an arcade and sitting down with an arcade cabinet and realizing that these things are all connected. That if I'm sitting down with Robotron 2084 or uh, Moon Patrol or any number of games like that, it's it's collectively creating a story together. And the story is not the narrative that might be at the top of the cabinet. Um, The story is the experience. So to me, it's always been about bringing those things together. And then just figuring out in this next session, how much can we tell? How much can we show? What interaction is capable? What does the technology allow us to do to replace the dice?
1: <laughs> yeah, and you, you said it wasn't a big a big leap from the campfire to a, a T1. <laughs> but but the, it does have technology, right? The computer. And I guess the, the point I want to take to carry is, you might have a really great story and you can share that easily around a campfire, maybe create a a simple game to represent that story on a, on a computer. But it's that story. And I always, there's a, there's a story that my grandfather used to tell me. It was a dark and stormy night. The boys around the fire sat that the boys said, tell us a story, Jack. And Jack said, okay, boys, here it goes. It was a dark and stormy night. The boys, around, so, the boys around the fire sat. They said, tell us a story, Jack. And Jack said, okay, boys, here it goes. It was a dark, kind of get the point, right? It was, that's the story. That's what they're able to tell. So, Kerry, how do you manage the relationship with technology to actually be prepared or be able to tell the story that you want to tell in the game? and i think i think
4: you you, it's that's a very interesting factor so technology is always i think with creative stuff i mean it's it's a bit of a bit of a balancing act so you 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 technology is always i feel a lot of times playing sort of catch up to to the folks who are creative where for example you said dark and stormy night now there's a whole bunch of stuff there's an emotional aspect to it which you've got to capture There's a visual aspect to it which a, a lot of it it is i mean your imagination can do a lot of things with that now to bring that into an actual screen there's a whole bunch so that emotion has to be created using technology using visual effects uh, sound is another big piece of it uh, and then overall environment that that portrays that emotion of dark and stormy night and so while it sounds simple enough it, when you're sitting on a campfire creating or recreating that same effect in, in inside a piece of software is is extremely challenging um, and you also want to have the same sort of uniform experience. When you say dark and stormy night, just about anybody listening to that automatically, it's there's thunder, lightning going on, this castle. So that stuff is pictured. And now, if you want to portray that on, on on an actual computer screen, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in terms of just even get anywhere close to that. So I think technology has always. Um, I think in this case, in, in this specific case, I have to concede that technology sort of plays catch up to. To people who are creative where we are always striving to to take what the creative people want to convey and then convey it properly and in, in its truest form in technology uh, and 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 i think that's also that also pushes technology beyond its existing boundaries and constantly allows us to improve so so it, it's it's a challenge it definitely keeps us uh keeps us on our toes and definitely, um, in fact, some of the innovation you'll see, uh, most of the innovation actually you'll see in this space comes from people in games and movie industries where they're pushing for for this sort of imaginary visual effects that you want to. Yeah,
2: let, let, let's talk about that because we, I, I'll be honest. So we, we decided to have a series of these. We didn't plan anything. So we have to decide, what are we going to talk about here right before? We, we pushed the record button, but as you can tell, we're not short of stories here. The, the, the thing that we discussed before starting was maybe we could create a, a similar, like a parallel with the movie industry. And Kerry, you just, you just went there, like where some writers maybe wrote a book. It's easy to picture in your head. Some people do it better than others, but you know, they the limit. It's your imagination. I remember... One of the first video game I used to play was just the one, I don't remember the name, but pretty much it was just code, like text that will describe you the environment where you were on a blank screen. And then you, you say, okay, turn left, turn right, go straight, and then tell me what you see. I think it was on an on Atari uh, machine. Anyway, for me, that was enough because I could use my imagination for that. For other people, like, show me that right? So that's when the movie comes in and how things get a lot more complicated. So we were talking about Avatar. I think that's a movie that everybody saw and how you needed the technology to actually catch up to show what the vision of Cameron was. So Kerry, you were making some really good point about, about that and how Sometimes we we need to go full circle in order to have the the right product. Maybe
4: uh, absolutely, and I, I I see this a lot uh, both in games and in movies where you you've got a script or you've got an idea, but you, you just don't have the technology to 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 bring it to life. Uh, and in games, actually, it becomes a little more complex because in movies it's it's a one way. There's a, there's no actual active interaction. With games, it is active interaction. There's repeatability, and so you want to. You want to make sure that if the prayer is going through the same level twice, it's a similar emotion. The dark and stormy night cannot turn into a bright and sunny day. So you have to create the same emotion every single time. So it actually becomes even more challenging. Um, But a lot of times, there's some excellent books and there's some great game ideas floating around there. And a lot of people are just waiting for the right right, um, sort of technology to to be around. And we've also seen the opposite where people have have, uh, sort of not waited and and decided they they can't wait and they produce stuff and then you suddenly see something that's not the production quality is low or the storytelling aspect is sort of fragmented because again the technology just cannot support that the level of uh, visual and sensory um, sort of projection is required for that
1: and Ra- rafael i'm wondering um because we're talking about games and movies and, and carrie touched on a point that so a movie, presumably you have a lot of time to prepare it, and then it is what it is, right? So you can work out the story with the technology and the presentation of that and, and do editing and all this thing, kind of get it in, in a good state, and that is what it is, right? Maybe it gets cut for for, for TV use. I don't even know if they do that anymore. But, but a game, to, to Gary's point, is very different, right? There's interaction, um, different paths, um, I don't know. Maybe the dark and stormy night does need to become bright and sunny for some situations. Maybe it's depending on who who you are, if it's a kid, maybe it is a a uh, bright and sunny day instead of a dark and stormy night until you get an older age. I guess my point is how how do you look at the story? And and Carrie kind of said you bring this stuff to, to light too soon, it can be maybe not a great experience how do you as a storyteller ensure that you're not compromising the story given the, the technology limitations perhaps that you may have in a game?
3: Um, so I, I think it's a tricky balance. I mean, I, I, I think that the folks within our industry who start with a rigid story that they want to tell, they generally need to wait until it is possible technologically to tell that story. Um Oftentimes, um, people can have an idea of a thing, it, but if they want an exact story, then it is a question of waiting. And 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 there are definitely parallels to film. You know, Neil Gaiman has said recently that um, that Warner Brothers talked about adapting uh, Sandman uh, back in the '90s, and he uh, he forced them not to. Um, you know, he basically said it, it's not ready, you know, because. What they would have been doing was basically taking his, you know, seventy-five issue run and condensing it down to a hundred-minute movie, and um, and and even if even if they just were to take parts of it, not just the technology, but how the technology was being conveyed, uh, the entertainment in at that time, it wasn't ready to tell that story, um, and and so I, I think that that games are often similar. Where the thing to keep in mind when we're making games is that we're starting with a, a simulation and we're saying, okay, there's this general expression of an idea that we want to take, and for the technology, how much of it can we actually convey and if you roll back to like the 70s or 80s, you know it's like this much you know we can take you know we can take five percent of that simulation and you know now we're maybe at we can take forty or fifty percent. But when we think about a real-world activity, not just the visuals, but the physics and the audio and the interaction, we always boil it down. Like games are about going—you go from this, and you—and then you 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 narrow down and and you funnel through to see what you can keep. Um, you know, a, 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 I'll just I'll run through a couple of quick stories to help illustrate that. Um, Warren Spector and Harvey Smith have talked about the process of making the first Deus Ex and how you know, they wanted this very open game, but Warren had an idea of a story and he was sometimes painting pictures in his head of how that story would look and Harvey would have to go like, okay, we can do a, um, we can do a camp rescue here, um, but you can't have a thousand people in the camp because we can't render that many. Um, and we can't move the, all those people around. Like, you have a, a big scene. We're going to have to boil that down. Like, what's the essence of that scene? You know, it, it, it's almost like indie filmmaking, going like, you want this big thing? Great. Here's our budget. What can we do with five people, not a 1,000? <laughs> so that that's really important um, in terms of, of of a presentation of a scene. But also sometimes it's... Just the core of what you can render. Um, so, like, like a, a good example of that, just shifting over to id Software, um, is that they went from Wolfenstein to Doom, and they went, okay, we can kind of do this two and a half D thing. And then after after Doom, and they'd done Doom and Doom Two, and they're like, okay, we've done a lot of this one thing. All of those guys were, you know, all those guys were playing basically D and D together. They wanted to do a big, expansive RPG, um, because they were playing that. And they were li- literally like, let's take a bunch of our RPG and party mechanics and all of this and this fantasy world and let's transport it into the, into the computer. And that was an early idea. And then kind of the rubber hits the road. And Carmet and realizes, like, OK, I can, I can bring this into 3D, but there's only so much I can bring into 3D. And so Quake starts as this RPG on paper, and then they cut and they cut and they cut. And at a certain point he's like, guys, we need to ship a game soon. (laughs) You know, like there's a reality of like, we need to make a thing. And he's like, this is what we have available. Um, What we can do in the time remaining, it'll look pretty cool and it'll be much more, it'll really be 3D, but we're mostly gonna do the sort of shooter stuff that we did with Doom because that's what we can do now. And all this RPG stuff, we, we can't render it. We can't run it. It's too complex. And so like he had to kind of go in and go, um, what can we make quickly in the time remaining? Um, because we have a production schedule, and we have a budget, and we have a contract, and we're supposed to ship a thing at a certain point in time, and we're running out of time. And so at, at a certain point, they basically went, well, they built parts of a bunch of different levels and they repurposed all those and they built and modified and grew them, but they effectively ended up with four designers building in four radically different styles, uh, building different sets of levels because initially they envisioned they were gonna have this world and then they realized that the tech wasn't ready for that. And so then you've essentially got like John Romero and Sandy Peterson and Tom, Hall and um, and Tim Willits building, um, and, and American McGee, but like they're building in different styles and they're not trying to, to bring that together. They're basically going, okay, so there's just gonna be the central hub and the stuff that you build is gonna, it's gonna be the play that we had before because we know that and we know it works. And we're gonna focus on learning these 3D level tools. And we're just going to make that. And John's convinced that it can be faster and more fluid than it ever was before. And we're just going to go with that. And so then you basically got John Carmack and Mike Abrash going, we can make it feel fluid at 60 frames a second, and it's going to be smooth like butter, and we're going to be able to transition from the single player to as many as 32 players in the multiplayer, and that's going to be new and that's going to have to be enough because we have to ship this in like nine months. <laughs> you, you pointed out two two additional
4: constraints. I mean, besides, so I, I think the couple of things that that besides technology, that's always a constraint is, is time and budget. I think, given enough enough time and enough enough budget, I think technology usually will catch up to the creative stuff. But we we we've also got to pay our bills, so you've got to create something and put something out there so people can see it. So I think that there's always that challenge. So part part of the constraint is is the the limiting uh, budget, limiting factors, and, and the time like you want—you want to release every everything by a certain, like, typically in the games is like the Thanksgiving window where you want the games to be out there. Otherwise, you start losing
3: money. Yeah, but like, keep in mind that those constraints are not bad things. That that notion of you have this much time and money, your your team has a particular experience. So, like, I, I will say, like, I love you know. I have a long affection for id games long before I worked there, but um, in my my view, Quake One is one of the greatest games of all time. And it's not because they sat down and said, hey, we have the perfect game. It's because they got into a time crunch and they sat down and looked at what tech they had and what resources they had and they said, we can make a better thing than we did for Doom and Doom 2. And they had a particular trajectory, but they made that game. And it became great because it was that particular game that they'd been working on for a while brought into 3D. And um, for, I, I know, you know, for a number of us, like for myself, Super Mario 64 and Quake 1 were games where I said, like, uh, I'm kind of starting to make games. I was like, 3D. This is this is what I was born to do. And these guys just showed, you know, on the N64 and on a Windows PC, they ju- like GL Quake showed a vision of of what a 3D world can be in real time that we'd been talking about since the 80s. And and it and it didn't mean that we couldn't have other types of experiences but just like it was focused GL quake and quake one was focused in the same way that robotron 2084 is focused it does this pure thing really really well and other things fall away and sometimes it's better for that
2: so is it is it always the book better than the movie um, (laughs) this has a lot of angles so feel free to take wherever you want
4: i think so I'm, a, I'm an avid reader, so I would like to say yes. The books always leave let your imagination go wild, and I've yet there's very few movies in my mind uh, who have actually captured the essence of what well, the the writer trying to convey. But part of it is also, I think, part of it can, comes down to the time and budgetary constraints. And if you literally, so if you have unlimited budget and ample amount of time, you can potentially get to a point where it's very close to it. But but the the genius of all of this is trying to take those constraints and still produce something that's, uh, that people don't watch and people enjoy. Um, so,
1: uh,
2: No, no. I, I just want to add to that because I'm thinking as you're describing certain things here, and I'm thinking like, if you are the director, the write the movie, or if you are the director of the video game and you write the script, you know what you can do and what you cannot do. So you're kind of writing with what you could realize in mind, so you're constrict, right, Raphael? But but you, you you play with the creativity that it allows. Yes, yeah, yes,
3: and yes, and no. Um, so I, I will say that um, I think every single game that I've worked on um, has, let's say that that has a coherent level sequence has changed the order of those levels prior to ship, every single game. Um, You have an idea of a story, you have an idea of a sequence, but things change and get cut. Um, And and sometimes for for all sorts of reasons, like I can remember working on The Hobbit and we had a a great level designer who built out a fantastic vision of Rivendell um, and the Tolkien Estate uh, and, and, and it got approved by Tolkien Enterprises, and the Tolkien estate saw it and was like, that's not Rivendell. Um, <laughs> and, and we're like, well, it, it, we thought this would be our Rivendell, and, and they're like, yeah, so that's not going to work. Like, so we ended up mostly cutting Rivendell because we didn't have time in the schedule after building up this fantastic vision of Rivendell that worked and was going to have all this RPG interaction and they're like yeah that's not rivendell so we're like oh so that gets removed now we need to move things around and we like we were literally like we have to keep the sequencing of the book but we have to shift things around because this level failed this level got cut and and you just you you adapt with what you have um, which to be fair often happens in film as well that that the the editor is sometimes bringing the story together and going like, this scene doesn't work here, but it works over here. Um, it, it's it's important. And, and I'll say that in a transmedia sense, um, across any mediums, you know, book, film, animation, TV, uh, video games, the important thing is not to have a rigid notion, but to go, what works when you bring it into this medium. So like, I, I'll give two examples. Um, I think that Blade Runner the movie is on par with Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep because they're so different. Mm-hmm. Um, and Blade Runner as, as a film has has influenced a whole ton of folks more so than the book, I love the book. The book is amazing, it's philosophical, but the movie has given visual language to an entire generation of creators. Um, Similarly, uh, Stanislaw Lem's um, uh, Stalker is a fantastic book and it's very meditative. Uh, Andrei uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker film, which is incredibly long and it's really slow, um, but for those who weather it, it's one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. It's a three hour film, um, maybe a little bit longer and it's really slow, it has almost no dialogue. But beyond the fact that it's been brought into games by um, GSC Game World, and they took it in a whole different direction and made it an open world FPS. But the film, in my mind, like I love Stanislaw Lem, but the film transcends Lem because the film does things with cinematography without any visual effects because it was made in 79. And so in a particular medium, if you work to that medium, you make something magical just for that medium, regardless of the medium.
1: And uh, Carrie, I'm, I'm, I'm always fascinated with the technology and uh, yeah, back in the day I used to sling, sling code and, and, uh, help bring tons of products to market and as a product manager, I would sell stories. Granted, not as flavorful or as colorful as a, as a game or a movie, but there were stories there. And then we'd have to go and, and work with the architects and the, and, the, and the engineers to say, okay, how are we going to deliver this story? And there are oftentimes uh, looking at, uh, obviously rendering for movies different than rendering for consoles and PCs and all kinds of different things. But there are technologies that you can kind of together everything's api driven nowadays you can buy services you can buy modules is the gaming industry the same in that regard where you can you can buy that dark and stormy night rendering <laughs> <You> know,
4: <laughs> in, in, fact, in? in fact in fact one of the one of the one of the first things i did when i got headfirst into gaming is right right shaders which are literally these effects um like the fire effect or the explosion effect or the smoke effect um you write shaders and those are small libraries that you pull in when you when you need that effect in game so absolutely you can you can do them i think that's that's that those libraries of effects both music both sound uh, sound effects and visual effects is getting larger and larger and in fact a lot of the game engines these days come with a bunch of pre-built-in effects um so it, it's definitely getting to a point where, where if you, if i want on want a smoke screen, or if I want if, I want, if the tire is screeching, I want to project that smoke coming out of there. I, I found, in fact, which actually the physics is built in; everything is built in. You just have to apply it. Um, so it's definitely getting better, and I, I envision this getting even even more advanced and much better visually uh, as as compute becomes cheaper.
2: I have a question that is always in my head because I I just love. Disney and Pixar. I'm a big fan of the animation. I like the classic. I like the Lady and the Tramp. I like uh, you know the 101 Dalmatian and all of that. And at the beginning, I, Dumbos, Dumbos too. It wasn't one with two big ears though. <laughs> and when when it started to be computerized, I just didn't it didn't click with me because I I wanted to be in a completely different world. I wanted to be in the in the world where where you where you draw something, it's kind of like writing a book. It's com- everything is allowed. You can do that, and and Disney was really good at it. But then, as animation, I mean, as computer graphic become better and better, and in the games, you you, you see that reality. Then I I kind of started to accept that, but I still draw a difference between the two. And I, I'm curious, why are we not seeing? I guess. Cartoonish uh, video games. I remember there were a few in the arcade, but actually, back in the in the days. And and everything is trying to be so so real. Why? The people well, want I, to see themselves in it. What, what's the story there?
4: So I think part of it is also I mean, this whole ship. This is where the whole metaverse stuff comes in, and then people want to see more photorealistic uh, imagery. Um, and so I think that. Well, there's two. I think there's two. In my mind, there's two things that make a game fantastic. One is gameplay aspect. And if you look at all of the Nintendo stuff, they, they don't really care much for the visual part of it. They focus purely on gameplay. So a lot of a lot of their visual stuff is very it's got a very classic style, uh, not necessarily for the real estate, but they focus a lot on intense gameplay stuff. And then there's the other side of stuff. And you, you see some games like um, Grand Theft Auto, for example, and it's getting more or, or Battlefield or, or yeah, or um what's what's the other one, which is oh gosh, I'm, um the big one from Activision, which is again a war game with Call of Duty. It's all very photorealistic and you 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 need a bit of gameplay and photorealism. So d- depends on depends on um what what is demanded. And I think with the whole shift to getting into the whole metaverse where people are creating their own avatars and they want to see they want to see as photorealistic stuff as possible. So I think they, that-
2: they want to see themselves in you know? it.
4: They they want well they want to see a better version of themselves. So when we create our avatar, we leave out all all the all the like if I create an avatar, my avatar guaranteed not going to have all the grey hair. It's gonna, <laughs> I'm going to be twenty years old, muscular. I mean that, that's, that's what you want to see. You want you want to see a much enhanced and better version. We all do, right? And so the the in the metaverse and allows you to create at least physically better ver- versions of yourself.
2: Yeah but what when you go into I don't know World of Warcraft and you decide to be an ogre
4: that, that's like um, <laughs> you, as... you you still don't want to see you still don't want to see uh maybe the first iteration of World of Warcraft you could see still some of the triangulation of of uh uh-huh and the the, the polygon yeah. rendering but no, now i was just joking about that yeah but now you want to see you want to see the hair moving you want to see the wind effect and all of that stuff so all it, people even if you're looking at non-photorealistic vision you want the rest of the you want the physics of the environment mm. to actually impact so so sneezes and talking and then uh, you know people want binaural <laughs> sound and people want if there's a breeze they want the hair floating and then they want the wrinkles in the dresses, uh, the costumes they're wearing. So all these are minor details, but all of that actually have these subtle, subtle details actually make for a better overall player experience. If you play, uh, if you play Tomb Raider, that's that's one game which has basically come from really, really early stage, and it, it, you, they're still making it. So you see, you see the visual difference between. Back in the day, if you Larkcroft's jaw is very like square, there's this mm-hmm. very geometric, and now it's more human-like.
3: It's more photorealistic.
4: So the, the lighting and everything. Yeah, the well, and
3: there's there's a sense of of um, some of the old types of of production uh, become indie, um, and and it's not that they don't happen, but so so like think of it as. Uh, Cuphead, as an example, is a 2D game with th- that—that's all. Um, you know, it's it's all visual style that's a, it's harkening back to the early days of Disney, um, and you know it, it kind of combines um, fast action shooter, you know, shoot 'em up aspects with um, w- with those sorts of visuals. Uh, Ori in the Blind Forest, Hollow Knight, um, Limbo, like th- th- there are a ton of games that are often simpler and they're smaller productions and and they're made by indie folks that are you know usually you know teams of of like let's say loosely speaking five to 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 15 um sometimes even smaller like fez if i remember correctly was was made by two folks um and um so you find that there's there's a active and vibrant space for indie games but the bigger players the publishers and the internal studios are always Kind of pushing for the blockbusters, and so think of it as like the Activision, Blizzard's, and the Electronic Arts and Ubisofts, or um, you know, like a, a Sony or a Microsoft w- w- or a Nintendo will fund and have some of those indies because they have a platform, but their own productions get bigger and bigger, um, and 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 sometimes it gets hard then to uh, to kind of keep that together. So like a, a good example is recently uh, Sega showed the new Sonic, which is Sonic Frontiers as an open world game. And people, you know, there's been a reaction to it where people are like, well, so there's Sonic there. And then there's a thing that looks like an Unreal 5 tech demo. And everything is realistic. And then there's Sonic. Um, and, And so people are looking at it and they're going like, well, Sonic should have a background in an environment that visually matches him. And you guys don't because Sonic has an, a visual aesthetic that goes back to the Sega Genesis. Um, and, and the thing is that it's actually in some respects hard to do a, a heavily stylized visual style. It's not impossible, but it's harder to do that with a big complex world where you have grass and you have waves and you have all sorts of, of you know, trees like to make everything stylized with a really big world it's kind of easier to go, well, if we set all of our artists up to do a realistic style and we're making Need for Speed, they know what to look for. Maybe there's a little bit of filtering on top. There's a Mm -hmm. little bit of a visual tweak, but it's a lot easier than to go, okay, let's make everything look like Cuphead, but it's a big 3D world that's the size of of a GTA world. Uh, everything, Everything big goes towards realism because it's easier if you've got a team of you know a hundred to 200 to 500 to go copy the real world
2: <laughs> I never thought it that way like the car game like GT and and like the cars' dynamic and and the way they turn and everything I guess if you were gonna invent a, a new way to do that 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 will be extremely complex so like talking recreating an entire C- world, an entire language. Yes,
3: right? Co- copying the real world is often the easiest thing to do. Even if it's hard technologically, you just go look outside, make it like that. Um, no, and and, and that it, is, it is then harder, but if if a, if a studio can figure out a style, so like think of Studio Ghibli, if you can figure out a house style and say, we're gonna build a big production, but everything has to fit has to fit that style. And and Disney, in in some respects, to bring it back, is still in in some ways trying to figure out their house style after going off in, in into CGI.
1: Mm-hmm. So where where does the indie innovation come in? I don't know. So they don't have obviously big big budgets to do blockbuster things. Does that mean they they cut back on the storyline? They cut back on the levels. They cut back on some of the features. And and in replace of that, where where do they innovate to kind of capture an audience that that they wouldn't get otherwise?
4: Well, I think indie. I think most most indie developers and most independent developers actually focus uh, more on the gameplay and, and storytelling, which which the big studios tend to ignore. They tend to I, if you look at the trends, most big studios or the big uh, publishing houses are, are focused more on franchise model where they're one one massive title or property and then they develop multiple franchises out of that and they keep year on year need for speed fifa call of duty classic examples Mm. but you because of the tools that we talked about like the stuff available to indie developers now actually a two-person team can literally churn out games or at least create small games with their own Storyline. I have a smaller audience, and then go from there. I think if I'm not from a Minecraft, started like that. Isn't it? There's a small, small group of people decided this is what we're going to do? And before you knew it, it, it this massive, this massive movement now, uh, which which can't be stopped. But so there is definitely innovation happening, and I think indie developers tend to take more riskier approaches or approaches or, or storylines that are considered more risky by the big studio. Uh, most big publishing houses have got external constraints, like they've got the shareholders, they've got the board of directors, they've got a captive audience that they want to cater to and, and not sort of turn off. Well, Indies, when you're starting out, you're literally starting with a blank state. So if there's something that you want to do, which is can be borderline controversial, but you can still go and do it, or it's borderline risky in terms of brand new concept, never been explored, um, too risky for big students. So there's a lot of innovation in storytelling and creativity there. And because they're budget constrained, you'd be surprised how much innovation happens in, in constrained um, timelines and budgets.
1: Any any examples? Maybe uh, you were rough to, to say this would have never been done.
4: Well, I'll, I'll give you an old example. But okay. away from games, but but it's, you guys remember the movie called Blair Witch Project? Oh yeah. It, it <laughs> yes. was was a tiny movie, tiny, literally short. I think it was it was deliberate, but it had tiny but tiny budget small crew super small crew, but it's become a cult classic uh it's become this massive massive thing uh, and then you've, you've seen the opposite you've seen water world which is massive multi-million dollar budget and went straight to the bottom of the sea floor uh, but... literally
2: <laughs>
4: literally <laughs> yes but but in games i'm not i i'm trying to think of
3: um uh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw a couple of examples out. So, um, Braid, um, you know, Braid was was made by one one developer, um, you know, Jonathan Blow. You know, he then, you know, his his next game was made by 15 people, and, and and they grew kind of their vision. But he had a notion of 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 a story about kind of love and loss and like dealing with um, uh, with a breakup, and and he put that into a game. And he built a game that was actually a fairly punishing game around uh, platforming and um, and time reversal, but it was connected to this notion that he was trying to deal with a personal, you know, relationship, and he was tr- and he was trying to not just go like, let me. You no, know, bad mouth. He was basically going like, let me deal with the feeling of loss and isolation and wanting to have a do-over. <laughs> and let me put that into a notion of platforming where the character where the player can rewind the character to, to do the, the, the difficult things again. And and so definitely I have seen any number of, of um, games where as as Carrie said, the indie developer um, puts, it connects ideas of gameplay and story together. You know, Fez is another great example where you go, okay, you've got a 2D world and you've got, but the world can rotate, but you can only see, you know, two dimensions at a time. Um, Monument Valley is, is another mm. um, where, where you go, they, they wanted to play with optical illusions and geometry. Um, but there's also a very touching story that's going along with it, and so it's rare but still possible to see larger groups do that. Um, Ubisoft, at one point with their game art framework, said, "Hey, we're going to do, we're going to go back intentionally and do 2D gameplay, and uh, not just with Rayman, but you know, like they they told a, a war story, um, you know, about uh, World War One." Um, in, in a cartoony style with simple exploration and platforming and a little bit of stealth. But you know, they, they kind of intentionally were like, this will recharge some of our folks by letting them go off in a small group and make a thing that's away from our big productions that have 150 to 500 people. Let's let 30 people go off here and work on something. And they're actually in groups of like you know five to 10. So that's very possible, but you almost have to intentionally do it because sometimes with a big company it's the opportunity cost. They go, "Hey, um, we're only going to put out so many, and we're only going to put out and market so many games a year. Um, do we want to market a small game?" And and then you get EA with you know um, you know after EA has had um, a lot of bad press, they go, "We're going to." You know, we may have shut down EA partners, but we're going to do EA originals and we need to rehabilitate our image and we're going to work with indies. You know, the EA original stuff is not coming from internal, but they're going, we'll do games like It Takes Two, you know, where it's really about a story of two people who who are their relationship is breaking down and they're going into a divorce and they've been sucked into a game and in the game they have to cooperate. Like those ideas happen better when you make something small and when you give time to find the pacing of what the story is and you have enough time to make the gameplay creative and unusual and you don't have to go, okay, so we're making need for, sp- like I, I can remember you know, EA production meetings going, so need for speed comes out every year on Black Friday, how many days do we have? And we go like, this is how much we have to make. Right. And it becomes regimented because you go structurally, we have to build all stuff. Sometimes when you're smaller now or 20 years ago or 10 years in the future, you'll go, we can still make a small intimate thing because we have the time to do it, and we have the technology to do it, but we can actually afford to experiment.
2: That's what they call feeding the beast, right? When you become wow. big enough so- too big to to and to maintain the beast, you know, to maintain all the people working. And so you're like, this is not about making an innovative game. This is about meeting the bottom line of, yep, every year. <laughs> We got to come up with this.
4: Well, the other thing thing is that most indie 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 developers can actually experiment cheaply. They they their right. cost of experimentation is significantly cheaper than something right. like Electronic Arts or an Activision, because uh, well they Electronic Arts and Activision or companies like that will not do something cheap. They I mean, they do it. They send two people to create something. They have to put some marketing dollars behind it. There's a whole system in place for them. For indies, if they've got nothing to lose, I and mean, they're like, just gonna kind of do mm. this crazy idea, we'll throw it out there because this we love it. Let's go, nobody's gonna tell us it has to come out on Black Friday, it'll come out exactly when we want it to come out, and then mm. boom,
2: love it, love it, love it. And uh, and I think I have a lot of ideas on what we can talk about next time.
1: Are you gonna be uh, Roger Rabbit in the next uh Water what? World video game,
3: Marco?
2: You know, I when we were talking about <laughs> that, that um, Sonic. <laughs> Into a world that is not him. I, I thought about who framed Roger Rabbit. It was and, an excellent yeah. movie. Huh? It was yeah, and there was uh, that really distinct yeah. cartoonish. I mean, even in Mary Poppins, you have this scene with kind the of that's unnatural,
4: but it was it was. It was
3: um, mask
4: was another movie that was really well. Right. Oh, the movie. mask it was, was
3: good. Yeah. The animation. Actually, have any of you guys seen the new uh, <clears throat> Chip and Rescue Rangers movie? Yeah, uh, because kind of I will say it's kind of the who framed Roger Rabbit of our time. Oh, really? um, yeah, so I, it, they have a lot of great inside jokes, but um, they went out of their way and they worked really hard. You know, to be fair, the the, the producers um, behind that the director worked really hard with Disney Legal to be able to bring in other um other creations because they didn't want it to be, oh, here's a world about animation characters and they're all Disney characters. They're like, no, no, we need to have this this functioning fictional LA that has all of these different animated characters from different scenarios. Like they, they, they specifically referenced the Who Framed Roger Rabbit scene where you've got Donald Duck and Daffy Duck playing piano together. They're like, we need that sort of thing. And, and, and the thing is that they pull it off. Like they they actually have a range of animated characters. And one of the funniest things in that movie, and, and, and I still kind of giggle when I see it, is that they brought in Ugly Sonic. For, for any listeners that don't know who Ugly Sonic is, Ugly Sonic was the original design for the Sonic movie um, where he's got kind of human teeth and, and he's kind of... Real, more realistically rendered and he's not quite as cartoony and his proportions are more human-like. And he goes into this kind of weird uncanny valley where it's not really the Sonic character from the Genesis, but it's this kind of like almost cosplaying Sonic. And before the Sonic movie came out, there was a really heavy reaction of like, that's not Sonic. It's mm-hmm. We don't know what that is, but it's not Sonic. So in the Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie, they actually call him, like, he calls himself Ugly Sonic. Like He is is literally in that movie. He's the failed actor that they dropped where they went to the one that they used for the movie. And he's in a comic convention, and he's, like, hawking his his wares. And it, it works because they have all these different characters that are different IP and different universes, and they bring them together. And that's just one of many examples where he's self-referential he's voiced by a fantastic comedian and he makes fun of himself and he's talking about how he's going to get into a um into a crime procedural uh which is going to be called if i remember correctly it's it's it, it, it's like it, it, it's like ugly crime uglier sonic like it, it or like ugly sonic uglier crimes but like he's he's constantly playing with the notion that he was rejected by the mainstream. So and yet it
2: was the original one. It was <laughs> yes. supposed to be the original one. It's and and like,
3: he knows that too.
2: <laughs> it's kind of like when they pick uh, a second choice for a big role into a movie and then it becomes that character yeah. like that wasn't actually supposed to be him.
3: And yeah. I think there's oh.
2: many of these cases. In,
3: exactly. In the and, and, and actually one last thing, the, the kind of the central conceit of this buddy picture um, between two SNL comedians who've been transported into being Chip and Dale is that they had a falling out, they come back, you know, they haven't seen each other for 20 years, and one of the two chipmunks has gotten CGI surgery. And so you've got one that is, is 2D and one of the, that is 3D. And it kind of works because it's completely ridiculous. but uh, like,
2: I have to see this.
3: It's not made. It's one of those things, like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, that's kind of built for adults, and you go into it, and they're just layer upon layer of jokes for people who understand. What's it called,
4: Chippendale, Chippendale? Rescue,
3: sorry. The Chippendale Rescue Rangers on, on Disney Plus. Okay. But like I, I I I went like I went into it, and I was I was like yeah, I don't know what this is, and then I'm like, oh, like the entire cast is is former SNL folks.
4: Definitely watching it tonight. <laughs>
2: yeah, sounds like a plan. <laughs>
3: Marco, so, there's one thing
2: I
4: want to bring up, and you you mentioned something about books translated to movies, and 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 where there was there's a they they've projected it properly. In one of my favorite books that my grandfather used to read, and my dad used to read to us when we were kids, was Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. Mm-hmm. So that book, even the first Jungle Book, which is 2D cell animation, they did a great job of capturing some of the storytelling and the imagination. And then I think there was a newer version. They did a live action. Disney did a live action, which, yep. again, I was, I was, I didn't have a lot of hopes for it, but they did a great job, I mean, of, of basically capturing the essence of that book, both in terms of storytelling and the visuals into the live action. So I think that's, that's one of the few book to movies of recent time that comes to mind, which actually then, then, which comes quite close to what, what did Kipling wanted. uh, on his, in, in the storytelling to, to, get to. and nice.
2: sometimes that you the, it change not completely but if, if you look at and then I know it, Sean now I'm playing you like one last one more thing <laughs> then you can kill this conversation well, I'm it.
1: stuck on that he got read Jungle Book and I got read It's a Dark and Stormy Night yeah. There's a little mismatch. <laughs> well,
2: my my last reference is going to be property. very Italian actually because <laughs> it's is about Pinocchio. Like a lot of people know the story of Pinocchio as it was told by Disney, which is pretty pretty loose interpretation of what Collodi wrote. It is a safe interpretation
4: though. <laughs>
2: it's 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 uh, way darker in the in the Collodi <laughs> original one. Uh with that said, I think uh, we we can jump in so many more things, and uh, I'll be curious to to see what we're gonna talk about next time, Sean. I'm excited. I don't know pizza for what. But...
1: Pizza parlor. I'm, that's what I'm my my pizza vote is. Pizza parlor. parlor. <laughs> that, that's perfect. Well, there there is
4: there is now 3D rendered pizza driven by AI, and we could talk, and I could talk on on that, I and mean, right. benefits of of AI generated pizza.
1: How's does that it taste? Yeah, it I doesn't smell no my belly. I don't know how. <laughs> I am not
4: someone to find out.
1: <laughs> All right, well, that's our homework is to watch uh, Rescue Rangers and uh, eat some virtual pizza. There you go. Right after I eat some real pizza. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sounds like a New, plan. I think a New York slice is in order. New York AI-generated pizza. <laughs> yeah, there, there
2: you go. Well, you guys, this was fun. Uh, yep. w- exactly what i expected and and something more i hope that everybody listening to this is going to say hey i'm curious to see what they had to say on the first episode so there'll be a link to that on uh, on the podcast notes and there is absolutely not a chronicle order because we we're not going to follow as you can There's tell no any any no. rules at all so and we'll be back again uh next yes.
1: month I'm coming as Ugly Sonic next time. I'm, I'm, I'm going to come as a virtual pizza.
2: There you go. There you go. Rafael, what's up with you? What's What's going to be your your, uh, your avatar? Raphael,
3: Ra- Ra- the storyteller, you wow. probably have multiple avatars. <laughs> well, I, I was I was going to say Ugly Sonic, but... Oh. Um, but no, you can be but, Ugly but, Sonic. But, I'll, but, I'll be something else. No, no, no. It, it's okay. Um, I, I was going to say Ugly Sonic, but instead I'm going to say uh, Sweet Pete. And I'm going to ask you guys to watch Rescue Rangers and and uh, and, and figure out who Sweet Pete is and who plays him <laughs> because it's amusing.
4: Well, that's I'm, I would
3: encourage the viewers, some of our newer
4: viewers who are not familiar with Roger Kipling, read Jungle Book and then watch mm. two movies. Actually, that's a very perfect example of, of how yeah. literature has been converted to mm.
1: visual yeah. and changes in tech as well. That's, yeah. that's still
4: one of my favorite books of, of all time. It, definitely, is, is mine. There, there is no, there is a dark and stormy night in there. In the last, <laughs> <episode>. <laughs> <laughs> right.
3: And, I and get, you know, I a, every, time, every time I, I think of of, of uh, it's a dark and stormy night, I, I think of um, uh, I, I think of Peanuts, uh, Charlie Brown, and uh, and, and the, the representation of of it's a dark and stormy night that, w- that was brought into there where uh where if i remember correctly snoopy's writing it's a dark and stormy night that's his great american yeah. novel
2: <laughs> and and, and he's, he just cannot get past that right exactly like, there you go now we're gonna go there too all right i think it's time to say goodbye we just hit the one hour uh mark so thank you for following I, we hope you had some fun and uh you'll be with us next time
4: Wonderful. It.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Love it. Thanks, everybody.
0: Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think,